and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we're going to talk about how the so-called frugal four, that new geopolitical grouping at the heart of European decision making, could become the transformative five. ECFR commissioned an opinion poll earlier this month which gives some very interesting insights into how people in those countries, as well as France and Germany and Poland, look at the future of the European Union and how their attitudes towards the EU have changed during the corona crisis. And while the EU has been agreeing its uh, ambitious recovery plans, And some of the most interesting findings relate to the views in these countries, which have become an increasingly powerful force on the big decisions, both about uh, EU spending, but also about what the EU is actually for. So we have an all-star cast to help us make sense of that today. I'm very happy to welcome Katarina Sorensen, who's the Deputy Director of the Danish think tank Europa, who have been a partner on us um, in this poll and have been leading on the, the Danish bit of the polling. Caroline de Reuter is an ECFR council member and Europe correspondent and columnist for the Dutch newspaper NRC Handelsblatt. Hopefully I haven't butchered your name too much, Carolina. And Daniel Sachs, also a founding council member of ECFR and the CEO and board member of the Swedish Stockholm-based Preventus AB, and somebody who's also been very involved in, in trying to think about political renewal in different European countries. And finally, we have Pavel Terka, who is a policy fellow at ECFR and one of the authors of our report on the Transformative Five, which is based on the, the polling that we've just been doing. So thank you very much to all of you for joining. As I said in the intro, the geopolitical grouping known as the Frugal Four, which is, was Austria, Denmark, Sweden and the Netherlands, have emerged as a key power centre in this year's negotiations on the size of the next EU budget and the shape of the, the bloc's recovery fund. And in May, this group grew from, from four to five when Finland became an informal member. And together, they make up almost a sixth of the European Union's economy. And as a collective force, they're, well, they're more or less the same size as France, slightly smaller than Germany. And we know that they're going to be even more important as uh, we have big fights over the, the future of, of the EU in the years ahead. Our poll seems to suggest that maybe this frugal banner has not been that helpful to these member states. And in fact, it could end up becoming a trap both for them themselves, but also for the rest of, of Europe. So maybe we can start with that. And I'd like to go to you first, Pavel, um, to talk about what are some of the top line findings in our poll and, and why this frugal label might not reflect how the public in these countries think about the future of Europe. Yes. Hello, Mark. So if you understand frugality as being stingy or tight-fisted, then indeed people in these countries do not seem to comply with such a stereotype. For example, when we ask them which statements about the recovery fund they believed were correct, it turned out that only 22% across the Frugal Five agreed that uh, with this recovery fund, the EU was spending too much money. So in other words, almost 8 in 10 voters in these countries did not believe that the EU was spending too much money. And their much bigger concern appeared to be about financial wastes and corruption linked to member states' use of the fund which was signaled by almost 40% across the Frugal Five. So why don't we 
talk to some of the the frugals about whether they're surprised by these results. Caroline, are you you're sitting in in the Netherlands, one of the the most active of the frugal countries. Were you surprised by this? Actually, I'm not sitting in the Netherlands. <laughs> I'm sitting in the, in Norway. But no, I'm not very much surprised by it. And I also think that the the frugals are transforming themselves a little bit. We used to have very, very fierce debates on the Italians huh? it, and it, in parliament and, and in political dis- discussions, all the fears of the, the, the frugal Dutch were, were more or less projected on the Italians. What are they going to do with, with, with our money? At a certain point, a lot of, of, of Europe uh, debates were sort of narrowed into that mold, if you wish. And now it is, the debate is shifted a little bit, uh, but I think in essence, it's, it's more or less the same uh, debate as we had, because it's still about waste and it's still about corruption and it's still about those other countries. Maybe they're not all in the South any longer as before, but now uh, we find them in the East who don't spend our taxpayers' money very well. So I see uh, the, the interesting results of this of this poll as a sort of slight shift, but the character is the same because the debate in the Netherlands and in some other uh, frugal or rich or Nordic or whatever you call them countries is that we are actually paying everything and we know how to spend our money and they do not. And whilst I think it, it is a good thing that everybody in the EU emphasizes money has to be spent well. This now becomes a, a new kind of crusade because we say we are good and they are bad. Huh? And this antagonizes others, I think, in a needless way, because there are many, many other things that we could emphasize too. How does it look from Stockholm, Daniel? Well, uh, I'm, of course, very encouraged that the electorate, not as frugal as our politicians have, have proven themselves to be. I, I, I think, however, that um, a lot of the frugality from the Swedish horizon has been driven by, by kind of domestic political realities, uh, because we have a minority government and there are other parts of parliament uh, who, who are very frugal. And I think that the, the Swedish government needed to sound very frugal going into the negotiations to secure a wide enough man- mandate to, to do a deal. But then in the end, of course, they happily agreed and happily supported a recovery fund and a deal which wasn't that frugal. So I think, uh, again, uh, you know, national politics is, is part of this. But I, I, I agree with what Caroline said as well. And I, I guess the, you know, there are times for frugality and there are times when, when that doesn't work very well. And I would say that uh, hopefully people are also realizing that at this time, there is an enormous need for fiscal stimulus uh, in, in order to, uh, to uh, put uh, European national economies and the EU, EU economy back on solid ground. And the EU needs to be part of that. So again, I think I'm, I'm quite encouraged by, uh, by, by frugality not, uh, not being at the center of, of our approach. Um, what about in Denmark, Katerina? Well, I think we're witnessing something quite interesting in that for decades we've had a classic elite public divide on Europe where leaders have time after time been surprised by a Eurosceptic electorate voting no to various EU referenda. Today we, have a, we seem to have a situation where it's the elite, our government, who is the most Eurosceptic. We have had a rhetoric from our leader who was uh, Mette Frederiksen, who has been much more frugal uh, in this context and, than the public, as, as we see by this poll. But I think it's not actually something surprising because the Danes have not had economic Euroscepticism. 
It's not been a skepticism about paying more to the EU budget. The Danish Euroscepticism traditionally has been one of giving more powers to the EU, not wanting to do that. So I think there is somehow a gap today between what the public wants and what the elite seems to think the public wants on, on the budget here. And the, the public is definitely not as much a demandeur for the, for the cut budget than what we saw the government was. So Pavel, one of the findings was this point about waste and corruption. It would be kind of interesting to hear how that's playing out, because at the same time that we were discovering that this was one of the big concerns in the frugal countries, we saw Poland and Hungary vetoing the budget because they didn't want to have a rule of law mechanism, which would put them under greater scrutiny. How do you think that that is going to play out? Are you asking about the negotiations about the cover fund? Well, both the negotiations, but also how public opinion in those countries and in the frugal states is going to play into those discussions. Yeah, so as we have discussed already, it's not among the frugal societies. The problem is not EU spending too much money on this recovery fund, but spending it wisely. But at the same time, this is uh, the sentiment that this should be a priority of the recovery uh, fund is widely shared in other countries too, because we did our polling also in France, Germany and Poland. And everywhere people agreed that the, the statement which got most uh, answers among the respondents was the one that there is a risk that the money will be wasted or lost to corruption. What we found in, in the frugal countries, though, is that uh, it's important to look at whether people believe that the influence of the country in the EU has been on the rise or has it been declining over the past couple of years. And then you realize that among those people who think that their country has been losing influence, they are much more likely to believe that the EU is uh, spending too much money on this recovery fund. And they are even more likely than the rest to fear that the money will be lost to uh, corruption and simply wasted. So, so what we believe is that the problem with, uh, in frugal states, it's not about frugality of their elites or their voters, but it's about this uh, widespread uh, feeling of, of losing influence in the uh, EU, which is shared by over 40% of voters across those five frugal countries. So I'd like to look at the, this sense of losing influence. But maybe before we do that, we could just spend a bit more time on this corruption rule of law stuff. Katrina, you're following the negotiations very closely. What do you think is going to happen in the end about the, this rule of law corruption mechanism? No, I think the verdict is definitely stood out on that one, Mark. But what I, what I think is, is crystallizing in, in opinion in, in Denmark, both on the elite side and the public side, is that this rule of law issue is actually an existential one. There's a drift from a purely market-oriented view on Europe in Denmark these years, where it was previously enough for the EU to handle economic issues to make sure that, that the, the market was functioning. Now there's this issue of the rule of law has, has alerted people to, it's not enough, there, there needs to be a, a minimum of common values. And I think this, this is a, a divisive point for many, and there is a, a sentiment in the electorate, in what we can see through, through our own polls, but also in the elite, that there is a limited room of maneuver for, for compromising on this rule of law issue. Otherwise, we risk losing the entire vote for the EU. So what could a compromise look like? Um, well, I think the latest that's being discussed in the Danish media is to, to say, okay, then those who don't want to be in on this, they do not take part in the recovery fund, and then let's move on. And I think that's maybe the what seems to be a, a possible compromise. But in the broader picture, this is the 
the more formal beginning of a, a Europe of multiple speeds. And, and I think in, for a country like Denmark to be demandeur for that is a bit of a risky business because who is in the inner club in the EU? If you look at Denmark with all the opt-outs, we're a country that, that would seem to be on the outside of that. But I think that's where we are seeing the discussions heading, that, that then we must move on in smaller groups. So the idea would be that you do the recovery fund like the ESM, the European Stability Mechanism, the bail fund for the euro, where, where they did it outside of the treaties in order to circumvent. The yeah, and, and you see similar ideas on migration and Schengen and, and more and more ideas like this coming up. So the patients seem to be thin at the moment. Is that also something which they're talking about a lot in the Netherlands, Caroline? Yes, all this is is also discussed in the Netherlands, although we have now far-right party completely exploding. Uh, so I'm afraid there's not a lot of talk about Europe at the moment. But one thing seems to get lost in a way in this whole debate, and that is when you look at what member states, including the Frugal Four or the Transformative Five, have done in the past against waste and corruption or the rule of law, it's not an awful lot. Eh? The member states could have gone to court already years ago on the rule of law in, in, in what's happening in Hungary and Poland. They have not done so. Commission has done it. Parliament has taken initiatives. And those cases are petering out in court in Luxembourg, because, also because member states are unwilling to impose uh, sanctions. Furthermore, they have just set up a new European prosecutor and they've given it very little money or her, very little money. And this prosecutor, Sweden and Denmark are not even participating for all their nice talk about the rule of law and, and wasting corruption. They're not participating. Uh, there were plans to give Europol wider powers to really uh, combat corruption and member states are not are not willing to support this either. So there are actually two debates. The public debate is gearing up against corruption and waste of, of European monies and hollowing out of the rule of law in some places. But if you look at what their own governments have been doing in the past and they could have done a lot, it is not that much. So Daniel, why do you think the Swedish government's blocking these things? Because I think it's a disgrace. Uh, and, but but I, and I think it should be seen in the context of, of of generally the Swedish political relationship to the EU, in which you know, in two dimensions. First of all, I think Swedish politicians have for very long been on the back foot in terms of talking about the EU. They've learned somehow that they they don't think that they can rally support or gain politically from talking about the EU. And you've got one thing in your poll which clearly indicates this, which is the EU's role in, 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 in climate. And the sport is very weak. And I think for the simple reason that Swedish politicians, if they talk about climate, they talk about the national agenda or they talk about the global agenda uh, through the UN, etc. But it's never talked about in, in an EU context. So, so people don't relate to it. And the other dimension of this, which is also connected, is that Swedish politicians have not for, for a long time been visionary about our relationship to the EU. It's all technocratic, basically. And I think this rule of law issue, of course, is very much a values-driven discussion and existential, as was mentioned. And they're not used to talking about the EU in, in those terms, and they're not used to talking about the EU in, in, in visionary terms. And hopefully they will read this poll of yours. We'll make sure they do, uh, so that they, they understand that they can use the EU as a positive force in their political messaging when trying to, to actually advance some of these issues, whether it's climate or whether it's, it's fundamental democratic and rule of law aspects of, of our societies. 
that's one of the really striking things, I think, about the poll, Daniel, that increasingly people in the frugal states see their country's influence diminishing in a post-Brexit Europe. And they see Europe as something which is being done to them rather than something which they can shape. And that is absolutely toxic because, you know, if, you know, in Britain, I think one of the insights that Tony Blair had when he was trying to uh, persuade British people to vote for, for the euro, which was a sort of slightly different political landscape to where we are now, was that people would never support it unless they thought that Britain was somehow shaping Europe. So they, they framed the debate as leading Europe or leaving Europe. And I think that that is the kind of danger in these frugal countries that in a way they underestimate their ability to, to shape things up because I think the public clearly is very interested in climate change. It conceived that it's difficult for Sweden to reduce CO2 emissions on the global scale on its own. And therefore, if one could somehow persuade Swedish people that, and, and the people of all the frugal countries, that their leaders are big beasts, that they could actually bring the European Union into the 21st century, turn it into a force for a greener, more digital, less corrupt Europe, that that might actually completely transform how people think about Europe. I agree. I agree. I think that the, the, what you've shown in this poll is that the soil, uh, the soil is there for that kind of, of, of uh, kind of tra- transition politically, but it does require leadership. I mean, it, it starts with, I think, our leading politicians starting to talk about the EU and our role in the EU uh, and the alignment that you comment on also, the alignment of, of uh, European interests and national interests on these very fundamental issues. And, and, and if you get that, I think... Uh, you know, hopefully what, what your poll shows is that the soil is there, which will also actually now lead to greater political support and, and political gains from promoting such an agenda. So, Katarina, you've been studying public opinion in Denmark for a long time, and we've all had to become experts on Danish public opinion, given the number of times Denmark's voted no in different Europe <laughs> referenda over the last few decades, which has affected the, the rest of us. You were talking in fascinating terms about how, in a way, the, the elite is now overshot in its Euroscepticism because it was trying to take, the Social Democrats were trying to take votes away from the Danish People's Party. And one of the ways they did that was by taking a very hard line on, on immigration, but also maybe being a bit more Eurosceptic. Do you think that that could start to change? Because Meta Fredriksson is very vibrant, dynamic figure. She she definitely cuts quite a profile on the European stage. I mean, could Denmark not hope to be a little bit more proactive on the European agenda? I think you're absolutely right, Mark, that, that there's been domestic reasons for, for the slightly Eurosceptic profile that she, her government has taken. I think it has been surprising how much she's downplayed Europe. It, it goes from, from um, being very outspoken against a bigger budget. She's using terms to describe in- increases in the budget that are really derogative of, of, of the EU, like Gaga, to describe any increase in the budget is Gaga. And, and that, that kind of debate is, is not very uh, transformative, uh, to use the term, if, if the focus can turn into a transformative bunch. I think she's overestimated, I mean, at least... The Danes are incredibly supportive of membership of the EU. I think we are among the top three in the EU 27 in terms of wanting membership. We've always been that. It's not it, also in 92 when we voted no to the Maastricht Treaty and 2000 to the euro and now the latest 2015, the no referendum. There's always been a big support for membership. The only thing, as I mentioned before, that, that the Danes don't want is to give up power, control. But, and now to the, to the question if something is changing, 
there is this security drift in it. This this sense that the world, I think you, you described that very well in your papers as well, Mark, that the world has become a bit more dangerous in recent years. We cannot count so much on the transatlantic alliance and so on. And I think people are really sensitive to that and the control issue that is so powerful and can win elections today. We saw that with Brexit. The control agenda is turning in the EU's favor. The EU is now, at least to a small country, in the position where it can offer us more control. And that change in public opinion has so far not been taken on board by the government. I think we've yet to see that being taken on board. Thank you very much. So, Caroline, maybe we can talk a bit about the Netherlands, because when I talk to Dutch people, they always tell me that now with Brexit, the Netherlands is is one of the top six, uh, big six member states in the European Union. And Mark Rutte is definitely, apart from Angela Merkel, one of the most uh, long-serving, experienced and wily operators on, on the European scale. He is a big beast in a lot of these discussions, but he's also fo- facing quite a lot of uh, political challenges with elections in the spring. And uh, as you said before, quite a, a lot of Euroscepticism bubbling up from different p- political parties. How do you think he's going to play this? He's, he's talked a more European game in recent years. He's talked about Europe uh, speaking the language of power on the world stage, but he has also been quite hardline and as a frugal representative how do you think that Rutter's going to move is he is he potentially going to pivot into being a more transformative leader on the european stage yes and no on the one hand you know the talk in the netherlands for a long time has been that uh, the eu is too big it's too 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 costly uh, there are too many people working in Brussels, that kind of talk. Rutte has seen that the world is changing and is very, very slowly widening his range of subjects. So he is talking about China, he is talking about Russia, European defense all of a sudden after Brexit, the Dutch have given up their resistance against that more or less too. But I think people understand it. Eh? The Dutch are rather worldly, uh, pragmatic people. So they like him uh, to talk about that. But at the same time, Rutte is watching his his right flank. He is a right-wing classical or right-wing liberal. And his main opposition is on the right. So And they are very Eurosceptic. So he's not talking a lot about those wider issues and, and or about climate or about digital. It is when he came back from the uh, July summit uh, on the European budget and the Corona Recovery Fund, while Merkel and Macron came home after this battle of four days, they were saying that big steps had been taken for Europe and so on. And Rutte comes home and he says, well, at least we managed to reduce the budget. When he's really, when the push comes to the shove, he, he narrows that debate. So he's doing a little bit of both at the moment. Okay, Pavel, why don't we come back to you and give you the last word? I haven't given you a chance to lay out that many of the big findings in this poll. There are some really important headlines which we've talked about, which is the the fact these countries don't feel as frugal, the concern about waste and corruption, the idea that they're losing influence in the EU. Are there any other surprising things that that you've got in your report which you want to share with our listeners before we we stop? Hopefully, there's enough there that they'll read the report themselves and be able to to learn every single gem of wisdom which you put into it. But do you want to... So I believe that there are plenty of interesting findings in the report. They concern the emotions that people in the frugal countries uh, experience uh, vis-à-vis the recovery fund or the areas in which they believe that the EU is contributing to their 
country's interests. And actually, surprisingly, citizens in the frugal countries recognize quite widely the EU's contribution on this front and not just on the economic front. But I encourage readers to explore those. Let me just say that uh, having heard what Katrina, Caroline and Daniel were saying, I believe that the urgent need for the frugal leaders is to make a more sophisticated case about the EU membership and especially the part from looking at the EU as uh, mostly a region of economic cooperation and only the single market. Otherwise, this uh, finding which shows that uh, people are increasingly feeling that their country's influence in the EU is on the decline, it, it could become even more of a problem. So I, f- I believe that leaders in those countries need to show that EU is, is much more than just the market and then also show that they can shape this uh, the EU, which is more important than, than the market. And therefore, rule of law and, and climate and environment are are obvious candidates for me where those countries can play a vital role. So I think you can hear from that that it's a really interesting snapshot of, of quite a big shift in the way that the public's thinking about Europe. And we've talked about some of those different dimensions, the idea of how much to spend on Europe, about whether Europe takes control away or gives it to people, but also this question about what it's for and a sense that it's much more than than simply a market now. I think that one of the ways of making the EU more legitimate is also outside of the control of the frugal leaders. It's about France and Germany. And one of the points which I'm trying to drive home in Paris and Berlin is that if they really want Europe to live up to their dreams, they need to give other countries more of a sense of control over it and do less in a Franco-German exclusive format and more with some of these other leaders to show that they're um, that they're controlling things we will put link up to our report on our website at ecfr.eu slash podcast where you can see all of the the polls and see some of the articles that have been written about it including by some of the people on this podcast but we have one thing left to do in this podcast which is our bookshelf segment daniel what's on your bookshelf at the moment I'm reading Hilary Mantel's The Mirror and the Light, the third part of her trilogy about uh, Thomas Cromwell. Really, really fascinating and well-written. Great. What about you, Katerina? I am rereading Team of Rivals by Doris Goodwin. It's about how Lincoln managed to put together his unhappy opponents in his cabinet. And in view of what's going on at the US at the moment, and that the Obama biography will be on my um, under the Christmas tree for me. I think this is a very... Um, Good to remind myself of you can bring unhappy opponents together. Fantastic. And what about you, Caroline? (laughs) I found an old play by Václav Havel, and it's called Leaving. And it's about a chancellor uh, or president, whatever, in an unnamed country somewhere in Europe who lost power but refuses to leave his residence. So this has nice resonances uh, across the pond, I would say. Interesting. Isn't it fascinating, Mark, that we're reading about historic figures and and power at this time? (laughs) It is, yeah. What about you, Pavel? What's on your bookshelf? I I may not be very original, but I just discovered that rereading Thomas Mann's Magic Mountain is a very good idea for this lockdown spleen that many of us are experiencing right now. And I'm going to recommend a podcast rather than the book, but there was a great podcast a few weeks ago with Ezra Klein on the Ezra Klein show, where he spoke to Evan Osnos, who's just written a big biography of Joe Biden. And uh, it, I think was a really interesting insight into the different personas which Joe Biden has adopted over the years, where he, where his big ideas come from, what kind of president he's going to be. So that's much recommended. 
If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please do let other people know about it by writing about it on your social media page or ours. But above all, hopefully, please do give us a good rating and review on whatever platform you've used to download this podcast on. But for now, from Pavel Tsarka, Daniel Sachs, Katerina Sorensen, Caroline De Geiter, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal, and our editor is Marlene Riedel.